Hey everybody, welcome to the green room for Disrupt TV. We've got an amazing episode today, and of course, amazing guests. I'm here with my guest co-host, Liz Miller, who's also found every other week on CRTV, our producer, L, and we're gonna do some introductions from reverse order. So Jenna, where are you coming in from, and what will we be talking about today? Hi everyone, uh, Jenna Fisher. I'm here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I'm here to talk about my new best-selling book called To the Top that I just released a couple months ago. Ooh, congratulations. Can't wait to dive deeper into that. Andrew, Eric, uh, where are we coming in from? The, the great Midwest. Andrew's in Cleveland. I'm in Chicago, and we're here to talk about process mining and how it can transform software development. Ooh, very, really hot topic these days. And very, very cool. Where are we coming in from, Dirk? Well, same here. I'm also San Francisco Bay Area right now, and um, it's actually sunny outside, which is rare <laughs> since the last few weeks here. California, lots of rain. Anyways, but I'm going to talk about, well, the metaverse, AI, whatever, right? Whatever comes to mind. <laughs> well, I can't believe you're in California to begin with, because you and I are traveling like crazy. So this is pretty amazing. Okay, well, with that, I'm going to turn it to Elle, and uh, we'll kick it off. Welcome, everybody. All right. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Disrupt TV. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Liz Miller, one of the top CMO whispers in the world, VP and, VP and Principal Alice here at Constellation Research. And I'm Rui Wong with Constellation Research. So welcome to episode number 322. This is the weekly podcast that we air talking about business, technology, leadership, and entrepreneurship. And of course, Bala Ashar, our co-host, will be back next week um, as he's traveling. So with that, we have an amazing guest. We're going to start here with Dirk Luth. And of course, everyone knows Dirk. He's the CEO and co-founder of Upland Me Incorporated. Dirk is a serial entrepreneur and an early adopter of blockchain and related technologies based here in Silicon Valley. In addition to being the co-founder and co-CEO of Upland Me, Dirk co-founded and is the chairman of a very important alliance called the Open Metaverse Alliance for Web3 OMA3 and he's also the author of the best-selling book, Navigating the Metaverse, A Guide to Limitless Possibilities in Web3 World. And of course, you can follow him on Dirk Luth, D-I-R-K-L-U-E-T-H. Welcome, Dirk, to Disrupt TV. Hello, hello. Good morning. Yeah, thank you for having me. Super excited to be on the show. Uh, this time it's not that cold like last time we met, right? <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> it's that's right. We were in Davos. It was pretty yeah. cold. Oh, yeah. No, that's a that's a new level. That's a new. Well, you guys already know each other, so I'm just gonna jump in. Can I just like I'm just gonna tromp all over the reunion here, and I'm I'm gonna ask this Dirk because I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated about this and kind of how people land in the metaverse right so what actually got you interested in this space of like gaming and blockchain and web3 in the metaverse what brought you here or there um, or where yeah so actually yeah where where's a good question right metaverse <laughs> some kind of a place right where we all all do i always say metaverse is some kind of a nation state right so <laughs> like like a country or where, wherever you do so but i got in, into it uh, let's say maybe you know in back a very long time ago maybe it's even over, almost more than 10 years um i was actually dabbling around a little bit because i was always fascinated about currencies and um you know i once was even done research in there i, I wrote my dissertation my phd program about private and state controlled currencies so then in 2011 
um, I was thinking, okay, I was thinking because I was always, you know, internet and, you know, internet was free, uh, you know, to, to, you know, to, to transport information and anything or do e-commerce, of course, you would pay for it. But what was not really never solved is that you can transfer value, right? I was actually start to think about that at that moment. And then I did some research and a friend of mine told me, hey, have you heard about Bitcoin? I said, nope, what is that? That sounds interesting concept. And then, uh, you know, and he, uh, he directed me to a website where I looked at the white paper, I read the white paper, and said, okay, this is really cool. But I said, okay, this is maybe one of the many currencies we are going to have in the internet. At that time, I said, okay, because, you know, at the time we already had gaming currencies uh, and uh, lots of other th initiatives going around. I wasn't aware that this was going to be that big at that moment right and then actually but the more i you know got into it then i and i you know i said okay well this is really game changing so i had never let go and then in uh 20 end of 2017 i actually sat together with my two co-founders uh mani hunik and dan zuckerman and we took the inspiration of monopoly so of the game which we <laughs> all know and love right is it hey why why don't we do the following, right? Because what we found is that everything that was done in blockchain related technologies was always very complicated, right? Yes. So it's, it's right. private keys, passphrases, you know, Zero proofs. <laughs> yeah, it's so hard to understand. Okay, say so no, 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 we want to do something which is easy to understand for you. So, what do we, how would you, how would you do that, right? So, first of all, Monopoly. I've never met anyone who does not understand and ever played Monopoly. So that's easy, right? So that's, oh, yeah, I understand it. Okay, let me say we take the real world. Okay, we, because why the real world? Because it connects this connection, right? Because emotion, you have something, oh, there's a nice property you might want to own in the metaverse, which you cannot own in the virtual, you know, but which you cannot own in the real world. Yep. And then the third thing is, uh, where are people today? And we said, okay, it's clearly this device, right? That's where, where we say, okay, we have to build something mobile first, make it easy to sign up, forget passphrases and private keys, just use email, right? Because people want to call someone or write an email when they lose their access to, to, to <laughs> the application right and use normal currency right allow them to use credit card paypal right to to get into it and so that was actually somehow the starting you know foundation which we had and you know fast forward you know today we proudly can say upland is you know in terms of landowner the largest metaverse out there um you know which is based on blockchain no, that's a huge deal. And you've not only taken the metaverse to another level, you've actually created a super app on the metaverse. Let's talk more about the super app because super apps have been hot and popularized by people who've taken over social media sites that might not know what, exactly what they're doing, but it's always interesting. So tell me more about super like apps and really how it ties back to Uplamy. Yeah, so first of all, super apps are ba basically, uh, you have that, you don't have a super app in the, let's say, Western world, like like in the US or in Europe. Nope. You have super app uh, with WeChat in China, right? You mm -hmm. have, um, uh, you know, so you have a few other in South America, in Indonesia, they always have something yeah. at the core. Go right? Jack, so, WeChat. I mean, these WeChat are companies that super apps. Exactly, so. they have chat, and then people put other, or developers put other applications on top of it. Right, so now then you can do e-commerce and so on. But they start somewhere, right? WeChat started with with chat, and then you have um, Goyak in, in in Indonesia. They started as a as a um, as a, um, a ride-hailing service, right? So they always coming from, and then they add more features around it, right? So that is exactly what um, also Upland is about. We started out as you know you, you can buy land. But now we launched our third-party developer platform where now third-party developers can add their own apps and experience to Upland. And But it was what is so novel, what all the metaverse is about, and what I'm a big, big proponent is instead of us being at the center as the platform, we want to, the users to be at the center of everything. That means when I, Dirk, now I'm in Upland and now I go to another world, I can take my identity with me, I can take I can take my digital mm. assets with me and so on, and I can go back into Upland and go to another world, right? And that's also why I co-founded, for instance, the Open Metaverse Alliance, because I really want to drive that whole idea, this paradigm shift we're talking about forward, that means 
users at the center, users are control of their assets, of their data, right? And uh, it's not the platform who, who actually steer and you know, manipulate users, whatever they want to do. And you're going to be previewing this, uh, previewing this like at Genesis Week, right? In a few weeks, right? Yeah, we have a, a large uh, community event early early June, 9th of June. We do that actually for the second time because the years before was not possible because of COVID. And uh, that's always exciting. People come to Genesis Week for our community from literally all around the world. They came from Australia, Japan, Israel. It was just crazy, right? And they all come together because obviously Metaverse is very virtual. And that's also, you still need physical events, right? Because people love to come together and, and yeah. have fun. No, it's a that crossover is amazing, right? I, I mean, I think that we saw it recently in South Korea, right? You had uh, Nongshim Ramen had a, a metaverse pop-up campaign, of course, in uh, you know, South Korea's massive metaverse communities. And it was so popular, they had to actually make a cafeteria in Seoul so people could come and eat at the physical replica of what had been <laughs> created in the metaverse and buy their Nongshim Ramen in real life that they had created. Like, this is what's happening. But I think it also, Dirk, it brings me to my question that I, I'm just kind of dying to ask you here, which is this perception of the metaverse. I think the vast majority of people out there have a very incorrect perception of what the metaverse or a metaverse could be, right? You know, we're, we're, we're talking about crossing over. You're talking about people coming from all over the world. You're talking about bringing your identity across all the universes. Could you maybe just explain, like, what are some of these misconceptions and how do we start to unravel them? Good point, yeah. Yeah, so first of all, I, maybe just a quick background story. Also, when we incorporate our company, we called it upland.me. So that's our URL, right, for Metaverse. And at that time, I said, we're not going to use that word, actually, because no one knows what that is. That was <laughs> right? so, so, Good call there. Good call. Yeah, yeah. I said in marketing, let's talk Still about the Still be a novel. World. Let's not call it that. Yeah, let's just yeah, exactly, let's move right? on. Yeah. Yeah. And then things have changed, right? And I don't know if you remember that. In 21, Mark Zuckerberg had a video out where he says, we're going to rebrand Facebook to Meta, Right. And here's how it's going to look like, right? And then people saw, you know, this this 3D worlds and so on. The problem with, with that was people thought, oh, it's already here. I can dive in. I can do all those things, right? Yeah. But actually, I just read actually just an article this morning about the metaverse is totally in a baby status. It just got born, right? And it can you know, it can maybe scream a little bit, but cannot even walk, right? So we have to be aware of that, even though we call it, because a human is a human forever when he gets born, right? Or she, right? But uh, but the metaverse is a metaverse and it will evolve over time. And that's exactly the same thing what we have. And the metaverse for sure is not just virtual, you know, virtual reality headset or, or, or whatever, right? It's something where you immerse in a socio and maybe economic way, right? That That is what, what the metaverse is about. And, and eventually, of course, with the advancement of technologies and you know, rumors are out that Apple is launching some kind of device soon, right? So, of course, then you will also use other devices to access the metaverse, but it's yeah. much more, much more on the meta level. How it's that's why it's called metaverse. <laughs> we, we always talk about it as shared immersion, and I always give Ray a hard time. So, Dirk, you can come and back me up. I'm now going to use Dirk as my official backup because I firmly believe that one of the weirdest places that the metaverse has become very, very real and very, very tangible for businesses, especially in a B2B environment, is of all places, field service management. Because in field <laughs> service, you can now take like an iPad, right? You, it's not device specific. And you have a hundred or more people now gathering and the shared immersion over a turbine to fix a tiny screw that was broken, that used to take months having to go in <laughs> They're now coming into these virtual spaces and doing it. So I like to give Ray a hard time. And Dirk, I'm now using you as my official backup in that argument. Perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> you know, no, we, we definitely gets great. Like um, the uh, digital twins definitely play place in field service. Yeah. 
But the question is like, how do you make money in the metaverse always pops up? We saw five layers. You've seen my metaverse economy stack, right? Really talking about the devices, right? Interfaces, right? Glasses, goggles. I don't know, plug something in the back of your head, maybe. Like, ooh, that's a little scary. Wait, we have the worlds, right? You operate in the worlds area. We actually see a whole bunch of DAOs playing a role. We see the Web3, you know, technologies that are there and blockchain as well. That's part of that five-layer stack that we see across the metaverse. Uh, but but use cases, what's working for your clients, customers? What do you see as areas, you know, along with land ownership? There's other things that's popping up. Yeah, I mean, we're first of all, maybe exclude the whole hardware industry, right? It's clearly that, you know, people can sell hardware and can make money of it, right? That's, that's, uh, that's what they're trying to do. That's the old world. That's the old world. So. Yeah, exactly. But but the, the idea is in the metaverse is when I said earlier, it's like a nation state. What I also say is that the metaverse is very much like, like uh, you know, where you can become an entrepreneur. Sometimes when you say Upland is the entrepreneurial metaverse where people can start their, and run their own businesses, and um, so, and now you have different, of course, different stakeholders, right? We as Upland, of course, you know, when you think about the nation state and when you think, you know, I'm an economist, right? When you think about the classical, uh, you know, functions of, of, you know, of production, you have actually, you have land. That's what we're selling in Upland, right? Because you need to have land in this nation state where you can build something on it, very much like in real world, right? You want to build a house on something somewhere, right? So these are basically, you know, this is the land and the resources. Then you have the machines. You need machines to build something. Third thing, you have labor. You need to have people who are actually doing the work. And the fourth thing is then the entrepreneurs, people who are coming up with the ideas right, and creating stuff. And that's exactly what we're going to see in the metaverse is that there will be lots of entrepreneurs coming up with new ideas, right? And of course, some of the ideas are you know, very easy to, to understand in the sense of maybe I run and operate you know, a digital business in the sense you know, we have a partnership with FIFA, you're selling digital goods of FIFA to, to other players or you're creating your own you know cars in upland or in any other metaverse right so that's that's what we what, you know what people can can do but i also clearly see there will be new you know new use cases which we are not even aware of because when the mobile phones came around no one knew that there will be an Instagram, right? So, and this became a business, right? You know, I asked Marty Cooper that, the guy, one of the guys invented the uh, cell phone that. It's like, did you imagine there'd be like Facebook or Instagram? It's like, yeah. no, we never thought we'd be sending pictures over the internet. So it's pretty wild. No, I have a funny story also when, when you think about this whole social media, when, when in, in, you know, the late 90s or so, I once sent my CV to a friend, you know, because he asked me, hey, can you send me a template? I want to have to write my CV. I send it over the internet, right? Now I really said, oh, shoot, and someone finds now my CV on the internet, it gets hacked, and my CV is out there, right? <laughs> Just think about now we have LinkedIn, right? Now Everyone we're thinking, like, yeah. right, here it is. Right. Yeah, on, like, yeah. right? so you can generate cool. a new one if you want. Tell, you know, yeah. tell a new AI to write Dirk's new CV. It's going to be generative AI, write, write my resume in the style of... <laughs> of Dirk. Yeah, I, oh, that's oh, exactly. totally that's the next version of it, right? <laughs> I love it. I love it. But so, I mean, it's funny because you, it's funny that you mentioned that because it kind of leads into the, the, the question of where does something like the metaverse start to play in whether it's culture, whether it is content creation generation, because I think that right now we're at this interesting inflection point, right? Where, you know, you did, we just talked about it, right? Who knew the phone was going to send pictures or be, you know, in a computer in our pocket. That was a major shift. You know, we will all look back on it sociologically and anthropologically and look at that and be like, that was a shift. How is the metaverse? Is the metaverse going to play in that type of shift again? Where is it going to fit in this kind of role of um, maybe even molding or changing, improving, disrupting, destroying? I don't know. I don't know what your word to use, Dirk. What, what, what's, gonna, what's happening? Yeah, the, the metaverse, of course, a big Cultural phenomenon, of course, we have to, we cannot exclude it, right? So that's what we're going to see. So it's this thing where we, when you, when we look at kids today, right? So they are growing up with playing everyday Roblox, right? When you have have, have kids in that age, right? They they don't ask you, hey, can you buy me a Smurf now, right? Can you give me a Robux, right? So I can buy something there, right? In, in, in the world of Roblox. And you're going to have that in other metaverses as well, right? So that's something. And, but what is now new, is especially when you think about blockchain, where you can actually transfer ownership and people truly own their assets. 
And I believe this will create much more new inspiring products because very much in real life, when you start owning stuff, when you know you can sell it, right, then you have the rights to, you know, to manipulate in, in, in a positive way. Then people will start creating more and more things, right? Mm. So I think we will have a big influx of new creativity coming our ways. And now just imagine, you know, in combination now with AI, but that's the reason why I think there's actually an interesting magic triangle between AI, um, blockchain, and the metaverse, right? So AI mm. is a tool, right, to help you create stuff also. Let's just, I mean, it can do lots of other things. We know that, right? But just uh, it helps you. Because now you don't need to have Photoshop skills or Blender skills, right? You just say into a microphone, hey, draw me a dog on a roof uh, dancing Zamba. <laughs> I don't know, whatever. <laughs> right? so, yeah. and, Dirk, yeah, so Dirk now, don't, don't spy on my computer, man, because that's just what, I'm not kidding you, later today you will see the product of what happened when Liz asked Adobe's Firefly to create oh. an image of an Akita wearing a purple chunky sweater and wearing sunglasses. I'm just saying that it happened, okay? So Dirk, I don't know how you knew it happened, but it happened. <laughs> so yeah, this is definitely happening there. We see immersive AI coming up. Uh, there's going to be different places like this. So this this is great. No, and, yeah, exactly. And anyone become now uh, can become much easier creator. But now, of course, you have to differentiate because if everyone can say, "Hey, draw me a dog," right? Now you have to. How do you make a dog look even better, or how do you embed it into something else? But what is also important now, the blockchain comes in. Because since now you created that, now you can put it on blockchain again. It's yours now because you created it, right? That's one thing. Um, but also helps, blockchain helps also to provide who's really the owner, right? So we can hopefully avoid all these fakes and whatever we have, right? There's also that aspect, right? And then the third is of the angle of the triangle is then the metaverse, because that's the place where I'm going to display it, right? So because some people say, oh, AI is that all the thunder from, from metaverse and so on. No, I don't think so. It's actually very complementary. All these three things are coming together. And this is going to have a profound impact on our you know on our society on culture and everything the way we work it's just going to be you know 10 years things are going to look very different i'm very very much convinced of that no this is it and this is actually where we see the future and i think that metaverse future is sitting in front of us so we are here with dark luth we're in the metaverse somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, definitely check out Upland Me uh, if you haven't had a chance. He's the CEO and co-founder. And of course, you can find him on Twitter at D-I-R-K-L-U-E-T-H. Thanks a lot for being in person here. Thank you. Thank you for having you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Dirk. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, indeed. I'm not it kidding is. you. I got that picture. I got a picture of Nikita wearing a purple sweater. It's happening. Come in. <laughs> it's... So no, while the metaverse is happening, right? We're, we're seeing some awesome advancements that are happening in the world of process mining and automation. So we're gonna talk a little bit to two amazing yes. folks, co-founders yes. of Bloomfilter. And more importantly, let me do their introductions in order, starting with Andrew and going to Eric. Andrew is a software engineer turned entrepreneur, and he's also one of our BT150 recipients. Um, he's passionate about improving the ways people build software. But before that, he co-founded Skiplist, a consultancy dedicated to refining the software development lifecycle, which we know is chaotic, but he's the reason I don't have Waterfall anymore. That's another different story. Andrew's previous roles include working as an early engineer at OnShift and Tableau and also a co-founder of Broker Savant. So you can follow him on Twitter at Andrew W. W-O-L-F-E. And of course, we have Eric Servinghaus. Uh, he's co-CEO and co-founder of Bloomfilter as well. And he's an entrepreneur, innovator, author, and adventurer who's been featured in Fortune, Forbes, and the Wall Street Journal. His track record includes profitable exits from Eye Contact to Vocus, Simple Relevance, Rise Interactive, and Spring CM to DocuSign. Ooh, I want to hang out with you more. Eric released his first book in 2021, Scale Your Everest, a guidebook for mental health, resilience, and entrepreneurship. And as an endurance athlete, Eric has conquered some of the world's tallest peaks, including Mount Everest in 2018. So you can follow him on Twitter at eSeveringHouse. And of course, he's here live. So welcome, gentlemen, here to Disrupt TV. I, I, I don't hey. want to talk about process mining anymore. I know, and we got to go back to the whole <laughs> Eric Klein's things. And I, I feel like I'm being cheap. Okay. Okay, we're going to keep it serious here for a second, but Eric, we're coming at you with some questions about this whole I've got to see stuff and climb stuff thing you've got going on, but that's besides the point. So what Ray didn't tell you is, that, so I'm the marketer of the bunch, right? So that's, I, I cover CX here at Constellation Research. 
Um, so you're going to have to baby step me through what in the world y'all are talking about. Let's talk process mining. What do you mean by that? What is it? And why does Eric need to scale it? Just, I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm get back in there. What does it mean? Tell me, bring it on. The, the scaling part's pathological when it comes to Eric. It's all he does is scale things. The, uh, <laughs> uh, so process mining, traditionally when people refer to it, is they're talking about uh, sitting on top of systems. So uh, traditionally this would be ERP system, think uh, SAP, think NetSuite. And then they use the logs within those systems to basically show you your process and where you have issues and inefficiencies in it. Uh, so the, the you know, category king here is Salonis, but you also have companies like Sanavio that got bought by uh, SAP. In terms of what they do is they, they basically help CFOs and executive teams look into their critical, in the case of Salonis, financial processes and say, hey, here's how your invoice flows to the process. Here's where you have issues potentially in your process that are causing inefficiencies. And then companies like Accenture, Deloitte will come in and use that data to create process efficiencies, be able to transform and do uh, incredible things with people's processes. And it's, you know, uh, I mean, it's taken the world by storm. I, I, Eric has the exact number, but I think it's the, one of the only markets growing 76% year over year. Uh, I don't know. Is that the exact number, Eric? So 76%, yeah, yeah. We, we, we've been pitching investors for a long time. We just raised, we raised our round. So. <laughs> it's okay. It's just like an inflated number. They'll be all right with that. No, but you're right. It is definitely fast growing. And, you know, and when we think about process mining, right, it's everything, right? Order to cash, procure to pay, incident to resolution, hire to retire. People are definitely looking at this across all angles, right? Yeah. Um, but, but in software development and software development lifecycle, right, these are CICD processes. These are things that typically have not been process mined, have been extremely manual. Tell us what the innovation is there. Yeah, it's exactly right. And Liz, to, to boil this down and make it you know kind of real simple, you've heard the old marketing axiom, I know half my budget's being wasted, I just can't tell which half, right? He was lying when he said that, but that's fine. Well, that's a whole other show, Eric, whole other show. It may be apocryphal, but everybody loves that quote, right? Like, like anybody that oversees and manages a complicated business process knows that there's a ton of waste and inefficiency in that process. The hard part is always figuring out where that is so that you can root it out and make it more efficient, right? And that's fundamentally what process mining does. That's the value that it brings. Ray, exactly to your point, process mining isn't anything new. This is a, you know, a 10-year-old academic discipline. It's been, um, it, it's been brought to bear in the CFO's office for years. We have things in kind of the revenue side that we don't necessarily call process mining, but are pretty close if you think about you know, what, what some of like the revenue management tools do. But the product development side has always been too hard of a challenge. You can't just go take a typical process mining tool and connect it into the various different systems. Um, when you think about product development, there's like a dozen different systems along the product development roadmap, right? You got everything from Figma up front where you're doing design all the way yep. down to something like a Jira in the middle. You got yep. CICD as you called out. So you got all these different tools across the entire life cycle. Yeah. You be able to stitch together together the way the process works across all these different tools. And then there's a tremendous amount of data analysis and data normalization that you need to be able to do in order to apply this academic discipline to the really specific problem around product development. That's the stuff that we've applied for a couple patents for right now. We've got a few more in the works coming because there's a lot of IP that you have to build in order to actually make this thing real. Hey, but Liz, get this. They got $7 million in funding last week. Congratulations. High five, you guys. Those numbers worked. Congratulations on remembering the 70%. That to that's totally what did it. I'm just convinced of that now. But listen, I, and I, I love what you're talking about because I, I think that the reality of, you know, whether I look at the ridiculousness that is now called the marketing technology stack, whether I look across the entirety of customer experience, revenue generation, all of these things, I think the fundamental... Uh, the, the dirty stuff we don't like say out loud is that with a lot of automation, what we have done is taken really bad, old, inefficient process and just made it go really, really fast, right? We're like, oh, we, we've now done it. Congratulations, everyone, right? So it sounds like what you're talking about is really working to resolve some of those issues, right? Mind what those processes are and, and then place some really smart automation certainly around them. But I guess my, my question then comes down to, how is what you guys are looking at different 
from say like your traditional, I don't know, like analytics packages that, that that's out there, your BI tools that you can apply to things. What's different about what a lot of people have been looking at as opposed to what people are doing? Yeah, what you're doing. In, software, in software development, the typical analytics you get out of the tools that happen, you know, I'm not going to pick on any uh, particular tool, but uh, we'll use Jira as an example. Do They're it. Using... Make it rhyme with something. It's, it, it makes it so much better. Yeah. Uh, they tend to pull the data out and give you the lagging indicators on your process, things like velocity, things like throughput. And so you understand where you've been. And the two things that are missing there are you what why you got there to begin with, right? You might know your velocity is low, but you don't know why you got there. And second, you kind of don't know where you're going either. And so you're left with these lagging indicators. And if you're an executive, a CTO, CIO, CPO, and you're trying to make decisions to reduce risk and ensure your software ships, you have to kind of make it on those lagging indicators. Say, well, I know my velocity is low. So you go and have the conversation with your team. And then when you have that conversation with your team, your analytics kind of help you know, you know, once you make a change, you can kind of measure after they've had a sprint or two sprints in the case of Agile, or if you're waterfall, you know, nope. you might not know for months at a time. We won't know for and months. Then, <laughs> yeah. And then that, that's like your best case. But what we find is a lot of the people we talk to are doing this all in Excel. They're doing this all in PowerPoint. <laughs> we, we've seen some, I've seen some amazing, like Mona Lisa level spreadsheets, like just inspiring level of like, I didn't even know you could do that in Excel. But that's what people have been forced to do in this industry for so long. And they still have a limited picture because they're looking at one system. They're looking at Jira. They're not looking at what's happening upstream in Figma and yeah. product board and aha. And then downstream in your no. GitHub, in your CICD, in your AWS. And so they have this very narrow picture and very lagging indicators to make any kind of strategic decision, which no other area in the business does that, right? When marketing, you're looking at what does my marketing funnel look like? You can take that and go to sales and you can make strategic decisions and theory. on hiring yeah. and everything like that. <laughs> in theory, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, but this happens a lot for product engineering, right? Product engineering is a really complicated area. That's an area you guys have been diving down into pretty deep. Uh, I mean, what are people learning, right, about this? I mean, because product engineering has also been kind of half art, half science. Uh, and so you guys have had to do something different along the way. Uh, what lessons? What, we've got a couple of lessons learned. What, what should we learn from, from those? Yeah, so I, I think the biggest learning that we continue to see over and over again, the fixation whenever we talk about software development, everybody wants to fixate on the developers. So it's always about like, like, like the first question that we always hear is, can you tell me if my engineers are working two jobs? Like, can, can you tell yeah. me if they're like, like, are they actually are they actually showing up and working? Because there's just like the obsession in people's minds that somehow these really expensive developers are just screwing around. And, and like, that's the reason that software isn't getting. Like, and because so the pain down. of the truth of that is so like acute. Like, it's so I, I guarantee you people watching this show, like like if we were to Wait, ask, did you see this in India? In India, they discovered this, right? They, they have to register for the retirement system. And in the middle of COVID, like people have like four different like retirement numbers going on. About this in the US as well, about lots of, of developers, software developers. How many people moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma for the free tax credit and never lived there? <laughs> so much of that gig economy that we've all been talking about. Like, I guess that's out the window now. So see you later. Bye. Right, that gig's up. That gig's up. Oh my gosh, but Eric, that's hysterical. So, but, so people are people are looking at the people, or at least how they think they're getting cheated, right? Like, like that seems to be at the heart of that. When you look at yeah. most of the existing tools that are out there, kind of trying to figure this stuff out, it's all fixated on being big brother for software developers. Like, are our developers working? How many lines of code are they writing? How, like, how often are they writing code? Oh, this is the same problem with Salesforce automation. Yeah. Exactly. So the how many lines of code they're writing always kind of gives me a giggle. Like that's a good barometer. Yeah, it's a heuristic that people use to it, right as though it's useful at all. And so what we continually learn over and over and over again, and, and what we show to our clients is this isn't like the developers are a small piece of the overall software development lifecycle. If you've got amazing developers that are sitting downstream of terrible requirements that have been built then it doesn't matter how great and how fast they code. It doesn't matter how much AI you apply to it. Yeah. It's still going to suck, right? right. 
And, so you said, that, you said a very important point. There's more than one way to do this, right? That was your point. Right. The, so, the, old, the old pearl uh, adage, but yes, exactly. But um, why is that? Why is there more than one way to do it? Like we couldn't quantify that before. What in process intelligence, process mining that allows us to see that's more effective? Well, so, so that that's exactly the key. And, and this is what we've seen where process mining gets applied to other disciplines. And this is where the magic light kind of turns on in the world of product development is now you can see everything end to end. Because without process mining across the end-to-end -end product development lifecycle, you get fixated on how many lines of code did this engineer write in Jira, as opposed to understanding what's going on with the requirements that are getting built, what's going on with user experience. So Liz, you kind of asked for like, what are some of the lessons that we've learned? We've seen with some of our customers where they say, I'm going to go hire 10 more engineers. And we say, we say, look at your process you're not getting hung up in engineering, you're getting hung up in, in QA. And, and so you can go hire 10 more engineers and all that's gonna happen is this is gonna keep stacking up and you're just gonna have more stuff stacked up in QA before you get to ship it. So we find a lot of these things where prior to us coming in or prior to like a conversation with Bloomfilter, there's this like, let's go beat the developer mindset, right? And <laughs> never, never mind the fact that requirements have changed, never mind scope has shifted never mind yeah. the fact that we're on teams so when you take an end-to-end -end view you actually become uh, capable of understanding where the challenges are in the process and it becomes a much more holistic conversation so i'm dying to know this are you then also taking that same holistic mindset and applying it outside of say product development because i gotta tell you i got like five candidates across <laughs> really bad scenarios but i'll just like i'll just text them over to y'all you can because like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna give the example of like contact centers right and customer service right our favorite thing to do in a contact center is do what go That's over what? and beat the living tar out of the agent right yep, yep. because it's clearly the agent's fault that we're spending all this money in the contact center and oh my god this operational waste and you know what we're going to do we're going to get bots we're going to put bots in place and then you know what happens because instead of callers calling into the contact center and rage screaming into the ivr agent and then rage screaming at the agent they're now rage typing on the bot and so what we've done is we've focused all of our process improvement in the in service onto this poor agent who hates their job half the time right they're getting yelled at all day and now they're being told they're inefficient and they're not doing it right when in reality it's all of these process just mess ups all the way through that you know through that operation so are you taking the same like is product development the first like outpost for blue breach like where are y'all reaching this is what i want to know bloom filter um and and, and filter, yeah sorry <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Blue yeah. Reach is also a company. Edit live. We, 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 company different company. We have no edits. We're all live. Here's what I'll say is for the foreseeable future, we think we've got a multi-billion dollar problem to solve in product development. Yeah. It oh, doesn't yeah. mean, Liz, that I haven't hooked my marketing stuff into Bloomfilter to start to see what's <laughs> happening, but it's certainly not what we're focused on. Yeah, yeah. No, I, love that makes a lot of I love the thought process. I hope people take that filter and shove it on over to what everyone else is doing. I love the thought. <laughs> so, but, but you know what? Like everyone's talking about AI, right? And you're also talking about the need for AI and process intelligence, right? And that's another hot topic here. And a lot of it's because we have the opportunity for a lot of exponential bad code. Right. I mean, we're going to be a lot of exponentially bad code because we didn't catch something early that was broken and we've now propagated it so quickly. It's just going to create even more crap. Uh, so so talk about this notion of you know why AI needs process intelligence. Yeah, we, we just actually posted this uh, yesterday to our blog to talk about this. Uh, the, the So, again, writing software is such a small part of software development. Right. Yep. There's requirements gathering, there's design, there is after that, there's deployment, there's support, there's testing. Right. So development is a small slice. And so as AI gets into creating, let's say you can create a hundred applications a day, right? Yep. But you still have to test them to make sure they're valid. You still have to deploy them. You still have to support them. And by the way, people, once you give the moose the metaphorical muffin, they're going to want a glass of milk. And so you're going to have to be able to support those and add features. And so it's going to go all the way through that entire cycle all over again. A platform like Bloomfilter helps you basically handle the velocity 
of AI and the ability to generate more applications. I actually think this isn't just unique to software development. AI is going to automate. I mean, think of R what RPA could do before. Now think what RPA can do when you stack things like GPT on it, right? It's going to get insane. So all these processes to Liz's point earlier, all these awful, awful processes that we could, that were awful before. Now they're awful at a speed we can't comprehend making mistakes everywhere. And you need an engine to be able to understand where the process is falling down so you can continuously improve it, make them efficient, make them, uh, you know, be able to handle the AI that's going to be, you know, massively transformative. You know, you make a point there, more code equals more technical debt. That's something you highlighted in the blog. So how do we make sure that we have less code and less technical debt? Uh, <laughs> make people want to use less, <laughs> use the computer less. Uh, <laughs> no, but should we be more modular? Maybe that's the case, right? We, sh we need to be more modular, so... You know, I think so. I think, you know, when you see where we were, I mean, 10 years ago, before AWS became popular, before a lot of cloud services became popular, architectures were a lot less modular. And now they are, people are using cloud services off the shelf. People are using a lot more open source than they've ever used before. There's a lot of modularity going in there, but the value that businesses create, unironically, the code that's being created now is business logic. But the world's gotten a lot more complex, a lot more integrated, a lot more shared. And so the business logic actually ends up growing at the same speed modularity increases. I think there's a tipping point, right? There's always a lot where the two lines meet where complexity is going to meet the demand. Uh, but I don't know if modularity is the answer. Certainly it's going to help, but I don't know if that's going to really move the needle as the world be continues to become more complex. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Just the 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 bottleneck you know is increasingly moving to to things like DevSecOps, right? And, and how do we security profile this code? How how do we make sure that as we ship more, if, if we bring in more modulars, uh, more modules, how do we make sure those modules don't create security implications that we need to worry about? So so th this gets back to it, it's fine to go attack the bottleneck to the deployment, right? These things exist in different places, but if we're not holistic around how we think about the development process then we just end up pushing the bottleneck into different parts of the process. Yep, we are here with Andrew Wolf, co-CEO of Bloomfilter and Eric Severinghouse, co-CEO and co-founder of Bloomfilter as well. And of course you can follow him at Andrew W. Wolf and E. Severinghouse uh, on Twitter. So thanks a lot for being here and congratulations on all the success today. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. Very, very cool. We jumped into the space and it's actually going to be hot. So if you think about what's happening, it's uh, it's getting even more crazy. So especially Eric doesn't get to leave. We had to keep him there for a second. But it no, is we're getting holding crazy. On. We're holding on to him. I know it's rightfully getting crazy. I mean, and I, you know, it's a uh, it's a fun spot. Jenna, hi. Hey, and Jenna. It's crazy the segue for me. No, we're uh, heading to the top. So, yeah. so we welcome Jenna Fisher, author of To the Top. And more importantly, Jenna Fisher is a leadership expert who's passionate about helping to get more women leaders to the top of corporations faster. She's also the author of To the Top, How Women in Corporate Leadership Are Rewriting the Rules for Success. So you've actually done this for more than 500 firms across the U.S. Jenna has a deep understanding of the leadership traits that power businesses forward. She also knows that the most successful companies in terms of any metric are led by diverse teams who reflect the world around us. Her work and insights have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes CFO Journal, and Agenda, but now importantly, here at Disrupt TV. So welcome to Disrupt TV, Jenna. Thank you so much. I want to have you follow me around like during my day, right? And just be like my gospel you know, choir, you know, behind me. Awesome. Thank hype you. Hype man. Yeah. Ray Wong, hype man for sale. We're going to work well, hey, no, right Thank now. you very much. We're really awesome. excited to have you. And uh, yeah. So, uh, Jenna, this topic, gosh, to say that I take this topic personally is like such an understatement. Oh my gosh. So let's dive right in. Kick Bala you know, out of the show to be here. So. I know. I you know, well, here's my trend. Here's my trend. Anytime we get to talk about uh, workforce empowerment, anytime we get to talk about uh, what is helping people get to the top, I'm gonna be here if they ask. So that's a yes, ma'am. But here's what I want to ask you, Jenna, because I think that your book, I think that the point of view and everything that you are touching on is so critically important. But I think there's also kind of a reality that maybe, and maybe this is where we can start. Yeah. The pandemic didn't just shift work trajectories or career trajectories. Very specifically, the pandemic forever shifted women's career 
trajectories. Um, I think that we have kind of almost overlooked the conversation and the very real conversation is when we went, like everyone went home, it changed everyone's careers. But we all of a sudden had to then hold down five full-time jobs at the same place, in the same space at the same time, while also trying to figure out how to move five steps forward. It was like 90 million dimensional chess and it felt really unfair. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> so what does that mean? What should we look at? But is there an opportunity here? I mean, it's easy to sit and look at the doom and gloom, but what's the opportunity here where women can now say, okay, we're in a moment, like, let's go do this. What changes? Absolutely. And, and you're, you're absolutely right that at first the pandemic clearly had a very detrimental impact on women's careers as so many, especially parents, had to help manage children's online school and domestic helpers were unable to conduct their jobs as normal. But I did see as time went on, once kids were back in school, this new normal of remote working has actually become a huge benefit to families, women in particular. And many of the knowledge workers of the world have proven that we can do our jobs just as well, if not better, remotely than by commuting to an office. And, you know, it's interesting back in September 2000, which I think at the time I thought was, um, you know, maybe like the end of COVID, but I think it, in retrospect, it was still kind of the <laughs> days of COVID, um, right. even though we didn't know it yet. I conducted a survey of about 200 of my clients, but 50% men, 50% women. And I asked them one simple question, which is when it is safe to do so, how many days a week do you want to go back into the office? And most people said, two to three days a week feels about right to me. But the really interesting finding for me was that at the barbells, at the ends of the spectrum, it was only men who said, I want to go back in five days a week. Like, bring me back to 2019. Here we come. <laughs> and conversely, it was only women, not one man, who said, I never want to go back into an office with any regularity except for maybe a special occasion. <laughs> and so... That to me really highlighted, wow, like women and men are looking at this opportunity to change to how we work in really different ways. And so I would argue just as none of us would ever attempt to still scrub laundry by hand and hang it outside to line drive <laughs> the washer dryer had been invented. I did that last week. <laughs> I was stuck in a hotel though. <laughs> <laughs> we need to leverage technology to empower our workers and the system we have of driving to an office is a vestige from the industrial era when it began over a hundred years ago, modeled yeah. after the assembly line, created a time when managers needed to physically see their teams to ensure that work was being done. And team members didn't have the myriad means of communicating and collaborating electronically we do today. And so I think this is, I mean, I wrote my book last year because I believe that now is our once in a century opportunity to help accelerate equality. Because right now, according to World Bank, it's gonna take 132 years for women and men to be at financial parity with each other. And that is shameful when you consider the fact that 71% of valedictorians are women, over 50% of college graduate women, over 50% of graduate school graduates are women. Yep. And yet women only compri comprise nine to 10% of CEOs in this country and it's similar statistics elsewhere, if not worse. And I don't fundamentally believe it's not because we're not leaning in far enough. It's because we're trying to climb to the top of a ladder that was not built for us to climb, especially while wearing heels. <laughs> we're tipping over. Yeah. We're tipping I mean, over we're leaning, leaning in is a lovely idea of like, I'm going to lean in, but like we're falling over because of the over. leaning. Some, con some consoles have probably done more disservice than others, but I'll leave it at that. Um, let's talk about the disparities um, that was going on between male and female employers at the beginning of the managerial level um, yeah. and, and both genders. Uh, given that there's few differences at the beginning, but something happens along the way that does impact women's careers. But I also do want to make a point too, at some point talking about in the office versus not in the office and mentorship, because that does help with mentorship if you're in the office. And I'll explain a little bit to that later. So go ahead, Jenna. So. Yeah, well, we can debate that. Um, so <laughs> no, I want to know more. I definitely want to know more. I want, I want to see yeah. the different angles. So, so you know, I would, I had this idea for this book seven or eight years ago. And my idea was all about, because I, in my role as an executive recruiter, I see both so many amazing women who have made it to the top. And I've also seen a lot of women who left the workforce for one reason or another, usually it's around children, and who then wanted to get back into the workforce. And they found it incredibly difficult to do so, almost impossible in a financially meaningful way. And so 
had this idea, but really it wasn't until frankly COVID and I had a couple of extra hours in my day because I wasn't commuting. <laughs> that I book. And I went into it with certain hypotheses about what I thought would be most salient and important for women to keep in mind when striving to accelerate their careers. But then I realized actually it's not the women that have to change. It's our structures. It's our companies. And one thing I hadn't really thought about is for heterosexual couples, the woman is on average two and a half years younger than her husband. So it, it might stand to reason quite logically that at the point in time when this couple has a child, which is really the moment at which earning potential, not potential rather, but earnings begin to diverge between men, men and women, they look at their their paychecks and the man, because he's been working arguably, you know, maybe twice as long as the woman at that point in time, he could be making more money and the woman gets maternity leave. Um, and so the woman, of course, stays home with the baby. And then there's a snowball effect where all of a sudden it's not just maternity leave that's impacted. It's okay. Whenever there's anything that's home and hearth related, you know, a doctor's appointment, somebody's coming to the house to fix the roof, whatever it might be, the woman takes that call literally. And unfortunately, that experience speaks nothing to potentiality. And so what's happening is women's careers are getting snuffed out before they've even begun. And so I think this is one of the reasons we really need to normalize extended paternity leave in this country. We are the only developed country in the world that does not have a federally mandated family leave act. And it's not enough for a company to have paternity leave options. You need to create a culture for men in an organization where they don't feel the friction about taking this time at home with their families, because otherwise it's per, it's propagating this, this sort of schism between men and women and the cycle that oh. we see forward. Got it. Super yeah. interesting. Super. So, I mean, I mean, clearly culture and organizational culture play such a role in that. When you start to see kind of the incentives, like let's say you, whether it is maternity leave, paternity leave, whether it is training programs, whether it is, you know, DEI program, whatever those the structures are, how are you seeing those? I mean, I think there are probably a billion examples of how they fail, uh, right? I think we've all experienced them, right? Um, how are those structures being rethought and recreated so that they succeed? Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, you make a really important point, Liz, because, um, and I, I just want to say that everything that I enumerate in my book is not predicated on some sort of philanthropic do-gooder intention that I think right. companies have. Organizations are going to get religion over this because it is in their economic best self-interest and it is profitable to yep. do these things. Um, so yes, I think it, it would be wonderful. And I do believe gender equality will come and it will be great for everybody on the planet. But companies aren't going to do it for that reason. They're going to do it because there's a war for talent. And the best people, and I would argue especially younger people, Go to the companies that support them. And if they're not supported, they're going to go somewhere else that will. And we saw a real shift in the balance of power between employees and employers during the pandemic. And again, I see this as an executive recruiter every day, how fierce the war for talent is. And, you know, I think sometimes we try to overthink some of these mandates or things that we think companies <laughs> do. And it, you know, and there are some structural things. And I, I talk about a lot of them in my book. But, you know, I'm going to give you an example of something that's really easy that everybody can do. And, and men are a huge part of this. So I want to also state that this is not a book for women. This is a book for women and men, because we need male allies. We can't get women to 50-50 without men. So one of the examples I give in my book, uh, I interviewed this woman, Sarah Mensa, who's the GM for the Nike brand, at Nike, total rock star. And she does this thing that I just love. It's, she calls it leaving loud. So whenever she has to, you know, take her son to a dentist appointment or she's going to his soccer game or whatever she's doing outside the office that pertains to her family, she goes around to everybody in the office and she says, hey, I'm going to be out for the next 90 minutes. Call me if you need me. I've got my son's soccer game. And it sounds like such a simple thing. And it is. It costs nothing to do. And yet in that one moment, it normalizes having a life outside mm -hmm. of work. It allows yeah. people to feel like, oh, I don't need to wear this mask to be successful here. And this is something women and men need to be doing because, you know, for all of us who are in high performing jobs, to do what we do well takes magic. It takes so much energy and brain power. And if you're expending, I would argue, even 10% 
of your time and energy trying to be somebody you're not, you are not going to be your best self for the company. You're not going to be your best self for, for your family. And so we need to allow people to sort of walk the race at their own pace. And, you know, we talked a little bit about this divergence between men and women and men usually happening in their 30s. So let's think about what we've all heretofore thought of as the successful career arc. It's sort of like learn in your 20s, earn in your 30s. You reach some sort of career nirvana by the time you're 45. If you're not in the C-suite by the time you're 50, forget about it, get out, retire. I think that is really um, just just not the right way to be thinking about this because maybe there's a reason why somebody wasn't sprinting a 26.2 mile marathon every day of her career. And maybe it's gonna take her a couple more years to get to that next career inflection point of promotion. But wouldn't you rather have 80% of an awesome person than force them into the Sophie's choice where they're either going to leave <laughs> the workforce altogether because they can't keep up, right? And that's what yeah. that's the position we put a lot of women in. And I think, by the way, this is something that will benefit men as well. There are lots of men who want to spend more time with their families and who want to be more present. Maybe they don't want to work 90 hours a week. Maybe they're like, you know what? I'll work 55 hours a week and be an awesome employee, but then I need to draw the line for a few yeah. years. I love the leaving loud idea, but I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, Jenna, the minute you said it, my brain, like this is the horrible admission. Like, so you said it, like she goes around and says, Hey, I'm leaving. I'm going to take my kids to the doctors. I'll be back in 90 minutes in the back of my brain. I was like, no, 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 no. Don't say that out loud. No, 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 no. You're not like, cause it's just so ingrained in our heads that you shouldn't say that. Like, you got to be like, I've got to go to a meeting. Like you're crafting some like gymnastics to get to this weird lie that makes you sound like you don't have a life. And I, and I am a firm believer that both men and women do this, right? Yeah. This is not just a, but I, I know for me, I can only speak about my own personal experience. One million percent. I have come up with fantastical gymnastics level lies about <laughs> where I had to go when the reality was I had to take my kid to the doctor. <laughs> like, I, like, so yeah, I love that. I hope, I, love not, that. I hope you're not doing it here. We don't care. <laughs> no, I, I know you guys. But, but I'll also say, but Jenna, I think this is a perfect example. Like one of the reasons why I joined Constellation was because as a lifestyle, as a culture, it was, it was out in the open from the moment I started talking to Ray about joining that you got to go take your kid to the doctor. Go take your kid to the oh, doctor. Like you got to go, like you're going to go like go to a birthday party for your mom. Go to a birthday party for your mom. That yeah. was, that's culture moment. Number one was that you have a life. And it starts at the top, right? So it starts with the people who are running the, the organization Yep. saying, Hey, we acknowledge this. And by the way, they're not just saying it to you. They are, they're modeling it themselves. And I also think this is where this new post COVID world is such a benefit because we can, we've proven we know how to trust our employees and measure the outputs and not the inputs. And it used to be that if we saw somebody getting into the office at seven in the morning and staying there till 10 o'clock at night, we'd be You're like, a hard oh, worker. Yeah. He's killing it. He's crushing yeah. it. <laughs> so that was yeah. what doing all it's day what long. we just talked about. It's what we just talked about with blue filter, right? Like it's, I mean, it's like, Hey, coders, if you wrote 17 bazillion lines of code, you're awesome. I used awesome. I used to think that, right? You go to Japan, these folks would come in at, you know, early in the morning, they leave late, they go out to like two in the morning. And then I got to Japan, I'm like, holy crap, these people are so unproductive. I'm like, why are they going to the work? You know, they could probably get a lot more done if they weren't like doing what they were doing. So right. And so now we can look at the technological footprint of say the mom or the dad who leaves the office at four o'clock to go, you know, pick up their child from daycare or whatever. And then they're getting back online at 730 at night. And, you, you know, you see all their email and Slack and, you know, and so, and, and I also think there's, there's also an egalitarianism in the Zoom world where everyone's box is the same size. It doesn't matter if you're tall or you're short. I, funny story, I just yes. to two different boards during COVID, never met her in person. And I just met her in person a few weeks ago. She's like 4'10". She's tiny. And her first thing was like, don't I look tall on Zoom? And I was like, you do no. look tall on Zoom. Because we give more credence. Her first name start with a B. <laughs> yes. She, I love her. Yes, she's a rock star. <laughs> no, she is. <laughs> I love it. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I love her. Yes. She, she's a rock star, right? Someone but, in Cocoa Beach, Florida. But keep going. <laughs> we, we give more credence to people who are six foot three than we do. And how many times have we all heard, oh, she just doesn't have the gravitas? Well, 
really? Is that a fair criticism or is she just not tall enough or old enough or whatever it might be? Right. right. So let's um, let's leverage technology to, to, you know, bring about change in the world. Real quick, I'm, I'm worried about mentorship in this yeah. everyone kind of hybrid work world or even at home. And let me let me give you an example. My son has an awesome internship, but it's virtual. Right. And, you know, you remember our internships when we were started or even your first job, you're in the office, you bump into people, the serendipity of going to lunch, right? The ability to actually follow someone along. Hey, by the way, come to this meeting, right? That's all gone. I cannot engineer serendipity in a digital environment. So like, hey, bump into my chat group. I mean, like, it's been so hard to do that. And, and I feel like that mentorship is being lost and it makes it harder to mentor the next set of leaders. Like, what do you do to combat something like that? I think, we, you know, I think in any change, right, there are new muscles and new skills to be learned. And I think this is no different. And I think part of the problem we're seeing right now with so many companies that are saying, you know, get your butts back in the office five days a week, while that does, you know, that might work for some cultures and some people, I don't think it's one size fits all. And I think that there's um, some confirmation bias in it. We think that because this is what I did to be successful, therefore that's what everybody needs to do. You know, you saw that, remember, you know, all the talk many years ago about changing residency for doctors. Like you have to work them 120 hours a week or else they're not going to be a great physician. Like, oh, we I, I would argue, I would disagree on that one. Uh, how, coming from a family of doctors, every one of my, every one of, every one of their friends and friends will tell you that that next generation of doctors who did not work that hard in the residency are not as good. I don't know why. And, and, and I get that from every one of them. I don't know what's going on there. Interesting. So. Maybe it's because they're underpaid now. Um. Well, they're all underpaid. <laughs> they're all underpaid. My, my brother is a human Jenna, doctor think, makes I, less I, than I, my plumber. I mean, like. <laughs> so. I think your point, Jenna, is so interesting because I also think that what we learned through the whole great resignation and what we learned through that swing then into things like quiet quitting, survey after survey after survey is saying the same thing. The reason why people left was that they lacked a like an attachment yeah. to either the brand or the people around them, or they lacked the feeling of self-determination, right? They yes. want tools that help them succeed. No. They want no. self-determination to say, hey, to be successful, to be productive, I'm coming in Tuesday and Thursday because I'm going to meet with you guys. But I'm most productive at home Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And that's like, it's that sense of self-determination. And I think we have to be really intentional about it, right? We have to ask people what they need because everybody's right. different. Like, I can tell you, we've actually here at Russell Reynolds been able to include more people in a sort of learning environment because you know what? You can have a more junior researcher come onto a client call. Those people were not getting invited wow. to our client. They weren't invited before. Ago, That's right? actually a really right. good point. Now, now they're in the yeah. meeting. I love that. They're learning. But I do think you make a good point, Ray, about those interstitial moments, those moments of serendipity where you're like, hey, that. please come along. Please, but you, you did know, it. Come join this meeting that you weren't on before. Before, and right? they're really Everyone hop in. Yep. But there are really important moments where we need to look each other in the eye. But I would argue it's not every day. So let's not kind of let, let's not look back and say, oh, it was this nirvana where we're all sitting together every day. Because we were. I was in the office doing the exact same thing. But it was, it was a shared sacrifice. It was painful. You did the commute. You no. could like mope and complain about the same issues. Yeah. There's a commonality of sacrifice. No, I'm just kidding. Hey, Ray, we still complain about the same issues. The point about networking is that, you know, I think the other thing that we see, I see, I've seen a lot with women in particular, is that many people, once they become parents, parents, women will say, hey, I'm going to optimize for the two most important things. I'm going to kick butt at work, and then I'm going to go and be an awesome mom at home. And that makes a lot of sense. But you play that out over many years, and all of a sudden, you know, that woman's missed out on all these different networking opportunities, you know, all the proverbial yeah. rounds of golf, all the cocktail parties, because, mm -hmm. you know, she necessarily didn't, didn't go to them. I actually think COVID has helped with this because there's more networking that happens now during the day online where people can participate. Yeah. So I have a rule in my book. I, I sort of jokingly refer to it as it take yourself on the once a month work date. Once a month, do something for your career, invest in it, nurture it like you would another human and go do that meeting. Go because otherwise you lose that connectivity of the second and third sort of deviated deviation context. And those people can be really helpful input yeah. inputs in your career. And knew who, know who that network is. I think a lot of us don't spend the time to actually know the network that we're part of. Um, and so we can't go and ask that person up the ladder a question. We can't go make sure we, we as women are in front of those executives that are making those decisions. So if you as a woman know your network and you really understand like, wow, that guy is really successful, but you know, he's also sending 15 emails to the boss asking substantive questions and getting in front of the boss. That is a moment of serendipity that that person's creating. And I, I firmly believe as women, we got to create those moments and know yeah. that 
it's okay to create the moment. Be called bossy. It's all right. Well, and also <laughs> let's, let's talk about you know the difference between mentorship and sponsorship. Women need sponsors. Sponsors Ooh, yeah. are mentors because they're people who are going to create opportunities for them. So, I mean, I had a sponsor earlier in my career who was not somebody I wanted to emulate or be like personally, but it was somebody who was super smart, did great work. I worked my tush off for him, but in sort of reciprocity of that, he gave me great opportunities. Yes. High potential women need that and companies can can put those together or it can be done more proactively on either side. And that's also something that we don't talk about enough. No, this is super important. And hey, actually even more important than that, your book comes out in a few days, is that true? No, you, it came out two months ago. It's already on the Two months ago, sorry, March 14th. I missed that. That's it. Yeah. Ah, I got me there. Yeah, oh, congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. So you hit the right month. Exactly. So, yeah. well, hey, thank you for so much for being on the show, sharing your wisdom and insights. Jenna Fisher, author to the top, and more importantly, a very insightful book for everyone to look at, uh, especially to see the changing workforce and more importantly, the changing landscape of leadership. So thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Woohoo. Wow. Went by fast. The fastest hour in TV. Fastest hour in TV. <laughs> what can so. I say? digital tv well thanks for having me i you know i always enjoy my hosting for vala role it's like asking for vala hosting for vala it's a whole t-shirt line on our soon to come constellation tv t-shirt shop you heard it here first <laughs> wow i didn't know we we're having one this is gonna be awesome yeah, we're gonna we're start a our website, but this is new but this is very yeah, cool it's gonna be fine it's gonna be fine it's gonna be a t-shirt store uh the first t-shirt is gonna be a polger mueller saying i'm not judgmental i'm just opinionated <laughs> The second one's going to be of Doug Henshin saying, I need a panini. So it's going to be fine. It's going to be great. We're going to love it. Site. Definitely catch Constellation Research TV, CRTV. <laughs> every other week. And you'll see our analysts featuring what the latest news is out there. But coming next week, episode 323, Paul Doherty, Group Chief Executive Technology and Chief Technology Officer at Accenture. Yuri Levine, two-time unicorn builder at Waze and Move It. And he's the author of a new book, Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution. And he's been a massive serial entrepreneur, disruptor, speaker, mentor, board member. And of course, Andrea Kramer and Alton Harris, authors of Beyond Bias, The Path to End Gender Inequality at Work as we continue the series on leadership. So if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you so much for being our co-host, Liz. And happy Friday. Take care. <laughs>